Well, there's a very big global rethink going on about energy, and in particular, energy independence. Germany and Italy waking up to the fact that they are totally dependent on Russia, and they're both going to start mining coal. Goodness gracious me, Greta Thunberg, she really must be crying and shouting at the moment. And yet, if you think about it, she did more than anybody to make us dependent upon Russia. Boris Johnson, well, what a change. What a difference a week makes. We now hear strong rumours that the two wells up in the northwest of England drilled by Quadrilla to extract shale gas, that actually they're not now likely to be concreted over, I'm pleased to say. And the Prime Minister today in the House of Commons announcing a new energy independence plan. I could hardly believe my ears. Now, he did emphasise we want to phase out hydrocarbons. All of this left me ever so slightly scratching my head. And then he did it. He came out pro-nuclear, said the Labour Party had not invested enough in new nuclear plants, accused the Labour Party of being anti-nuclear. Well, actually, Starmer then stood up and said the Labour Party is in favour of nuclear power. All I can say is given where we were a week ago as a country on this, there's been a big political change, and I'm delighted to see that, and I've been pushing hard for a complete rethink and an open public debate. So, the question for you tonight to answer to me, is nuclear the key to our energy independence? Farage at gbnews.uk. Now, in the gallery today was Darren McCaffrey, GB News's political editor. Darren, you bore witness to all of this. Yeah, indeed. And it is fascinating, as you say, this massive change. But this is part of a whole series of changes that we've seen here in the West to what is happening. Nuclear energy, I think it's about a fifth of Britain's energy comes um, yeah. from nuclear energy. The problem is that most of our nuclear reactors are due to shut down in the next decade or so. I'm talking about uh, places like Hinkley Point that may well come on stream. But again, that is many years down the line. Also notable, Rolls-Royce has been given the go-ahead to properly invest and to research these kind of mini nuclear plants they're talking about. But again, they're not going to come on stream until the 2030s at the earliest. But there is now a determination on the government's behalf to try and come up with a new strategy to ensure that Britain is energy depend independent mm. essentially from the rest of Europe whether that involves uh, North Sea resources potentially fracking who knows but this is what the Prime Minister had to say in the Commons a little earlier I will be setting out an energy independence plan uh, for this country, Mr Speaker, in the course uh, of the next few days uh, to ensure that we undo some of the damage of previous decisions taken, uh, not least by the Labour government, to invest in, uh, not to, not to, not to invest in nuclear, uh, Mr Speaker, and, so, and so, that we, so, that we prepare, so that we prepare our people uh, for the long term uh, with sustainable, cost-efficient energy supply. Uh, the long term, indeed, everyone recognises that. The problem, of course, is it is the long uh, term. Interestingly, and you picked up on this as well, he seemed to try and attack the Labour Party at several points today about abandoning... Yes. Now, I thought they left power a few years ago. Well, this is... The, I think sometimes <laughs> the problem forgets the Conservatives have been in power for 12 years, uh, under which time they, they could have done that. And, and you're right, though, it did provoke a reaction from Keir Starmer, mm. uh, insisting that largely, actually, they're on board with all of this. Labour is pro-nuclear, 
This Prime Minister can't get a single brick laid of a new nuclear plant. <laughs> Energy security isn't just about supply, it's also about reducing demand. Aren't politicians wonderful? Energy security, you know, being self-sufficient. When I was writing articles about it in Sunday newspapers last week, I mean, it was as if, you know, I might as well have come from Mars. The concept was so foreign, and now they're all talking about it. The problem is, even if we start to develop onshore gas, that's a year, and that's the quickest new source Indeed. of energy, North Sea exploration with prices where they are, so much more of the North Sea becomes viable, but again, that's several years. Nuclear... Decades, potentially. Uh, well, well, maybe not at quite as bad as that. At least, at least a decade, possibly, yeah. Isn't the problem, Darren, yeah. there is a short-term emergency? But this is the big problem the government immediately faces. The Prime Minister considered a long-term independent energy supply strategy, and he will. That may be fine. The problem is what's going to happen in the coming weeks and months. Mm. We are seeing potentially petrol prices hit the pumps two quid this year. We're going to see energy prices not go up by hundreds of pounds, potentially thousands of pounds, depending on what happens. All this, while inflation is now expected to hit at least 8%, and on top of that, the government's going to impose tax rises, substantial tax rises in the form of a national insurance increase and changing the boundaries on the income tax threshold. That means a lot more people will be paying essentially the top rate yeah. of tax. You add all that in, that means an enormous squeeze on people's standard of living. Some might suggest, and David Cameron, Boris Johnson's predecessor has been on the radio tonight saying an unsustainable squeeze on people's living standards. Something is going to have to give here. We saw the Irish, for example, today immediately announce that they're going to slash uh, the tax on petrol and diesel from midnight tonight until August by 20 cents and 15 pence cents, uh, respectively. The government, I think, are going to have to come up with something I'm pretty sharpish to deal with all of this. Are they going to drop those tax increases? Politically, well, would have thought they would. The Chancellor, though, is holding resolute, but in the end, it'll have to be Boris Johnson's decision. And, of course, on fuel, there's a big increase in duty coming for red diesel. Red diesel used by everybody in the construction industry, people out there making roads, a lot of people out there doing deliveries, 38% increase in tax well, and on I red think, diesel. And, and it is fascinating in that, again, as always with these things, with the green agenda... And, and the government's not going to claim it's abandoning this, but there is a recognition that in the short term, these targets of carbon neutral by 2050, you know, we're still a long way from 2050, in the short term decisions, like, for example, on red diesel, or indeed, and, and a government, I don't think it's, they've stopped the escalator, but they've not deliberately cut, for example, uh, fuel duty for a very long no. period of time, that that has to now be on the table, given the circumstance we're in, given also that the British government are committed to phasing out, aren't they, Russian oil by the end of this year. And all of it from a government who had to massively increase public borrowing, massively increase the national debt during coronavirus. Well, I, mean, I mean, to be fair, that, that's the one point the Conservative Party make is that, you know, we can have it every each way. I'm sure that's what the Chancellor would say right now is if you want a better public health care system, if you want more NHS spending, it has to come through taxation. It cannot simply come through borrowing anymore, given the size of the mm. national debt. And also that we cannot keep insisting that we're constantly in a crisis. And that may well be true, but the whole point is we are in a crisis and we're in a crisis that is hitting people in the back pockets. And it is one that if the Conservative Party get wrong, could be very, very difficult for them. At the it's going to be a very big budget in two weeks' time. Darren, as ever, thank you very much indeed. So nuclear, there we are. I haven't heard a positive word really said about nuclear 
at the dispatch box like that for it must be years and years and years. I know just the very use of the word nuclear can provoke very strong reactions. I'm going to be fascinated to see how you respond to my question. Is nuclear the key to us becoming energy independent? Well, let's debate nuclear. Let's debate it with Malcolm Grimston, a former information officer at the Nuclear Industry Association and United Kingdom Atomic Energy Authority. Um, thank you very much indeed, Malcolm, for joining me. Hello. Good evening. Now, I get the arguments for you. I get the arguments for nuclear, you know, particularly as Boris Johnson wants to pursue net zero, that this is um, a form of energy that does not emit carbon dioxide. I get it. I get the fact that it's reliable in the sense that it produces energy 24-7, 365 days a year. I get and I understand all of that. I also understand the extent to which we run down the stock um, of nuclear power stations in this country. But when you see in that small Ukrainian town of Zafazia, I think that's the right pronunciation, but the biggest nuclear plant in Europe, and there were Russian artillery and tanks shelling a nuclear power station, warnings coming out of the Ukrainian government that this could be many times worse than Chernobyl. I mean, when I saw those images, Malcolm, they were absolutely horrifying. And yet, doesn't that warn us in some ways, that nuclear power stations can be vulnerable. But to take the specifics of what we believe has happened in Zaporozhye, those photographs, those images you've just seen, it seems fairly clear that the reactors were behind the cameraman and uh, the, the images were of the Russian troops trying to take the plant. My own reading is that since the Russians were sweeping northwards towards Gif, which is about 350 miles from uh, the, the plant, uh, they simply had to take control of the plant, whatever it had been. Uh, and it does seem that they uh, that, that what they were doing there was clearly not designed to cause a nuclear incident, but it was a military operation to take control of the plant. And they are extremely robust, these stations. All of the measuring in the area there has shown that there's no change in, in activity. That's the specifics. More generally, of course, any type of infrastructure can't really be designed against someone who desperately wants to uh, destroy it. We have learned from Fukushima and actually from Chernobyl as well that despite some of the press comments at the time, the actual health effects from those have been much less than, say, a chemical disaster like we saw at Bhopal in 1984, or a hydro dam going wrong like we saw in in uh, in China in the in the 70s. But nonetheless, uh, any installation should be run safely, and if caught in a war zone, uh, it's. Uh, it, it's something that's of concern. So far, I think these plants have shown the robustness that they're known for. Uh, but it would be really a, a very good thing if the International Atomic Energy Agency were allowed in just to ensure that operation is being carried out safely. Yeah. And of course, Chernobyl, you just mentioned, but Chernobyl back in the news again today. Um, potentially going to run out of energy to keep the plant going and keep the plant cool. But the point I'm making, Malcolm, is I understand the arguments for nuclear energy. I think we'd be mad uh, not to start investing in this. But you do understand, don't you, why people, when they see what happened back in the 80s in Chernobyl, uh, when they 
listen to the difficulties of dealing with nuclear waste. You know, there is a, if the nuclear industry in this country um, is going to become something that there is a general big level of confidence in, it's got some big PR to do, hasn't it? Yes, I agree. And, and nobody's going to pretend that nuclear power is problem free, apart from what you've talked about. They're extremely expensive to build, which doesn't sit well within a market uh, approach to electricity. So it has its challenges. Um, but equivalently, the, this isn't one of these things that you would do if it was an enormous executive toy. If we're not doing nuclear, we're doing something else, which also, as we've tragically seen over the last fortnight, can have very severe uh, security implications in a military sense, as well as in an energy uh, mm. sense. The actual record of nuclear power over the 70 years since we've been using it is utterly extraordinary. Millions of lives saved by reducing the emissions from coal-fired stations, which we know are dangerous, not, not carbon I'm talking about here, and that's another angle, but the sulfur emissions, the emissions yeah. that cause uh, uh, asthma and the like. Um, but like anything else in life, we need to recognise that it has challenges and we need to address those challenges. So far, we've been very good at that, but we need to continue doing that. And after what we've seen in the last fortnight, undoubtedly in some areas of the world, we need to be looking at the potential of, of, of stepping up some of those security measures. But it does come back that despite all of what's gone on, the plants are still operating safely at this moment. And how far away are we from these small modular nuclear reactors that we keep hearing so much about? Well, Rolls-Royce is hoping to have its first one uh, operating before 2030 and is talking about a programme of perhaps 16 of these across the UK by the mid-2030s. It's not actually that new a concept. You could describe our advanced gas-cooled reactors, which are closing at the moment. They're of the same sort of size of these smaller, nimbler reactors. Um, and certainly, you know, submarines have been powered by what you would describe as small modular reactors uh, since before even nuclear power has been uh, exploited. Uh, and some of the developments, and China are investing a lot of this, Europe is investing a lot in this, the States, of course, look really very exciting. As with all new technologies, you have to build a few and prove it, because the great thing about enthusiasts in any field, you need enthusiasts to get things going. But there is a danger that the enthusiasts may find their enthusiasm running away with themselves. Yeah. So well, it, it, we need to demonstrate it. But I think it is very exciting. Well, Malcolm Grimston, one thing's for certain, we're going to have this debate again and again over the course of the next few years. Thank you for joining me tonight on GB News. In a moment, I will talk to Pavlov Klimkin. He was the Foreign Affairs Minister for Ukraine from 2014 to 2019. I'll ask him, are there any prospects for a peace deal? So is nuclear the key to our energy independence in the future? Some of your views. Stephen says, our energy prices are going up by 54%. France's increase is around 5%. France's energy consumption last year was 78% nuclear. It's not rocket science. Powerful point. Joe says, nuclear is the key to our energy bills being cheaper, but as long as it's built by the UK and not by anyone else, I couldn't agree more. We don't want the Chinese Communist Party in our nuclear power stations. I couldn't agree more. That was something. That was something that George Osborne and David Cameron got horrendously wrong. 
Phil says, nuclear and fracking, how are we to fuel all the power stations to run all these electric cars, let alone having an independent and stable energy strategy? Another viewer suggests, as I have a gas fire and gas central heating, then no, nuclear is not the way forward for me. Get fracking. Alan says, yes, it's safe as well. Well, the point was made there that over 70 years of nuclear power uh, compared to the particle pollution put out by coal-fired power stations, it probably has saved a very large number of lives. Now, the refugee crisis, it's continuing. It's over two million people. A row in the UK about are we efficient enough? Can we process this? Are we right even to say we want people to go through the process of getting a visa. That's a big debate. But joining me now, Paul Hawkins is there. Um, and I understand, Paul, you're at Berekshuren in Hungary on the border with, with um, Ukraine. Yeah, that's right, Nigel. Excellent uh, pronunciation. Took me about 10 goes to get it. But yeah, that is where we are. At the moment, it's one of the five crossings on the Hungary-Ukraine border. It's about 85 miles long, so it's yeah, seven times smaller than that huge border that Poland has with Ukraine. And Poland, of course, taking in the vast majority of those 2.2 million refugees. But uh, Hungary, the second country, currently 203,000 refugees have uh, entered Hungary uh, from Ukraine, and it, it has caused real problems, uh, the invasion of Ukraine for, uh, the pre for the Prime Minister Viktor Orban and his Fidesz party, who are up for election in a month's time. He, of course, has moved the country economically and politically closer to Russia. Um, initially, he blocked the uh, membership of uh, Ukraine to the European Union. Now he's backing fast-track membership. He has been critical of President Putin, um, and he's put NATO troops inside Hungary but he's not allowing weapons to be sent across the border into Ukraine. So he's trying to cross, he's trying to sort of, uh, you know, balance himself very carefully uh, politically in terms of uh, how he's managing this crisis. But the country, uh, which has had an anti-immigration rhetoric for some time, it's done a kind of 360, really, and it's now welcoming a lot of refugees. Uh, and uh, Viktor Orban, uh, the, certainly the polling suggests that they're looking for the country to move away from Russia at the moment. And with an election coming imminently, he's had to respond with policies that include, you know, free accommodation for uh, those who are coming to uh, Hungary. And also that they can work in the country as well. They can travel on trains for free. A lot of people coming into Hungary, then moving on to other countries like Germany. But there has been a change in certainly in government policy when it comes to immigration and refugees. No, really interesting, Paul. Thank you very much indeed for that report. And yes, definitely having a huge impact on the politics of Hungary. Big election coming up. There's a grand coalition that has formed against Viktor Orban. It's going to be a fascinating contest. So the point I'm making is that Priti Patel is saying, no, we have to go through visa requirements. Whilst we want to be generous and we'll take a couple of hundred thousand people if necessary, we have to be able to protect ourselves. Is it right for British politicians to encourage so many people from Ukraine to come to the UK? Might it be better if they stayed in countries closer to their home? A lot, of course, will depend on how this war ends and whether people feel really safe in terms of going back. Well, joining me to discuss that dilemma is Toby Lanza, a former UN Assistant Secretary General who, earlier in his career, led the emergency response to the Russian Chechnya 
crisis. Thank you very much indeed, Toby, for joining me this evening. Um, Thank you. My impression is that most of those that are leaving Ukraine would like to go back there as quickly as possible. I think that's an important point. Uh, the first thing is to recognize that there are you know, well over 40 million, perhaps as many as 43 million people inside Ukraine. And the first uh, priority for Britain, for the international community, is to do our utmost to protect people inside the country and to get them as much help there as we possibly can. The second priority is to help people, if they have to flee, uh, in neighboring countries. And Britain has certainly been helping uh, Poland and Hungary, as we've just heard, uh, and other neighboring countries provide safe haven to the people of Ukraine who have had to flee. That said, of course, there will always be people who will want to go further afield or to join family members. We've got a large Ukrainian community living in Britain. And I do feel, and, and I think the chief or the, the former chief whip, uh, um, Julian Smith said it very well in the Commons today, Britain really hasn't lined up its ducks very well over the past week in, 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 in being there for those women and children in particular who have had to flee a dire situation. So would you argue then that we're wrong to have a visa scheme and a series of interviews and some form of vetting. Are you saying we shouldn't have to do that? We shouldn't need to do that? Well, unfortunately, it'll, there'll always be a minority of people who take advantage of a situation. So there should, there should be a form of vetting. I think the disturbing thing this week was that uh, the Home Office seemed to be rather unprepared for something mm. that many of us would have seen coming a few weeks <laughs> ago. Um, so there's some catching up to be done. Um, but certainly, if it's a woman, a child, uh, somebody who's desperately ill or injured, um, that the, the amount of vetting should be at the, the absolute minimum. Yeah. Um, yeah. That said, and let's remember, most people always want to stay home. Most people, if they've had to flee from their home, want to get back to it as quickly as possible. So helping the UN Refugee Agency, for example, in Poland, in Romania, in Hungary, and in other places that are close to the Ukraine, is really what Britain should be doing increasingly, as well as, as I said earlier, uh, meeting its real priority of providing help to the people who are still stuck inside Ukraine. And let's bear in mind, it's unlikely that this war will end quickly and help will be needed for quite some time. So there needs to be a strategic approach to this, a three-pronged strategy, if you will, inside the country, neighboring countries, but also welcoming people to Britain who absolutely need safe haven uh, here at okay. home. In no, I understand that. I, understand that. I, I get the balance of your arguments where the help is most needed. Uh, but equally, might it be fair to say that all the criticism that is being mounted at Pretty Patel at the moment is perhaps less to do with her hard-heartedness and more to do with a not-fit-for-purpose Home Office? Uh you know, people will always exploit emergency situations. And uh, as, as you know better than me, uh, um, politicians will play politics and um, bureaucrats will play, uh, you know, power games at the same time. But I don't think that uh, a woman, a child, somebody who's injured uh, or fled 
the Ukraine should be part of that equation. So I do think there's some catching up to be done, as I said, uh, in the Home Office, in Whitehall writ large. Uh, and I think that the Foreign and Development uh, Office uh, can, be, can be nudging people in the Home Office in the right direction so that Britain doesn't uh, uh, spend so much time debating this particular issue, but instead uh, is actually applauded for the role that it's taken, not only on the humanitarian front, but also on the political and the security front, which, as you know so well, is, is a very delicate balance because of the involvement of, of Russia and the invasion uh, that President Putin has, has carried out of a neighboring independent state. Yeah, no, I mean, my feeling actually is that uh, in terms of many of the actions that have been taken, actually Britain's played quite a leading role um, and there's nothing there uh, to be ashamed of. It's kind of what I hope Brexit Britain might do. Thank you ever so much indeed for joining us and making those passionate arguments, Toby Lanza. Thank you very much indeed. Now, one nice story that occurred today. We do need some nice stories, don't we? I was very much brought up on Shackleton, Ernest Shackleton. And why is that? Well, because, albeit a few decades later, I went to the same school as Ernest Shackleton. And of course, the story of endurance, heading south, getting crushed in the ice, the ship sinking, the men, the dogs on the ice with their sledges and with their dinghy, the James Caird, the utterly extraordinary story of how they went across the ice, they got to Elephant Island, and Shackleton and a few others sailed a dinghy, no more than about a 16-foot dinghy, 830 miles across the southern, the stormy southern oceans, then climbed a mountain range uh, to get help, um, and everybody survived. It is an amazing moment, and you saw that picture a moment ago. Endurance has been found 10,000 feet under the Weddell Sea, and it looks perfectly preserved. It is an incredible victory for the Falklands Maritime Heritage Trust. It's an amazing thing. Now joining me is Pavlov Klimkin, Ukrainian diplomat and a former Minister of Foreign Affairs for the Ukraine from 2014 to 2019. Uh, Pavlov, good evening and welcome to the programme. I would love uh, to say good evening, Nigel, but unfortunately it's not good for Ukraine. We've just had another strike on maternity hospital in Mariupol, and it's pure miracle that we have uh, 17 wounded people so far, but uh, uh, nobody killed. But it's a real genocide now. We're basically trying to bomb us out. What I mean in, in military terms, I know that I know that your president has been asking for a no-fly zone. Um, I know there was the potential offer of some Polish jets, and they were going to come through the Americans and through a German base, and that got rejected. Uh, but in a sense, in a sense, you have been given a pretty significant stock of anti aircraft weapons and anti-tank weapons. I mean, is it your feeling, given that we did persuade you to give up nuclear weapons all those years ago, is it your feeling, Pavlov, that we've let you down? Uh, well, uh, we've got uh, considerable assistance 
Unfortunately, too late, because we had been asking uh, for this assistance for years. If we had done what is going on now in 2014, nothing like what's going on now could have happened, even theoretically. So it's not about proactive reaction. It's not about supporting Ukrainian resilience. Uh, it's always reacting on uh, what Putin has been doing. Secondly, anti-tank weapons is important for Ukraine, and we are grateful. Uh, stingers are important for Ukraine, but unfortunately, Russian planes are flying uh, far higher than our anti-air okay. missiles uh, could reach, and you understand that. So fundamentally, Putin's goal is to bomb us out with missiles and, and bombs. And we have it uh, basically every hour. So uh, it's, it's, it's a completely different feeling when uh, you have Ukrainians dying uh, every, every moment. And I understand that for the West to set up a no-fly no zone is a fundamental challenge. And there is a lot of fear that Putin could simply get a nuclear button or could become unpredictable. And if it's not possible to set up such a zone, why is it not possible to give us a real military assistance, a real anti-air missiles, which could help us because uh, it's an amazing uh, resilience. It's an amazing commitment of Ukrainians. We are far better in the sense of combat spirit than the Russians. We are a thousand times better. And uh, we are not just holding. In many cases, we are winning against the Russians, but we unfortunately, we don't control the air. No, I understand that. I, I do understand that. And I do understand the costs. Indeed, the costs are happening to ordinary Russian soldiers, too. Uh, no one wants to see any of this. Putin has put on the table some peace proposals. I'm sure you will reject those proposals out of hand. Is there any, in your opinion, any prospect of a peace deal of some kind being struck? Well, uh, uh, any sort of Putin requirements uh, are actually points how to break up Ukraine. Yep, and I understand that. Putin uh, famously denied uh, our, us our history, our nation, uh, our mentality, our statehood, everything. And fundamentally, what he is trying to achieve is the end of Ukraine as such, the end of our existence. And of course, we are we understand the necessity for compromises, and we are ready to enter into uh, different compromises. But we will not, under any conditions, uh, accept something which would mean the end of Ukraine, uh, uh, the end of our statehood and the end of our nation. We can't uh, accept uh, the loss of our territory and uh, our people. Never ever it could happen. And according to any opinion polls, 95% of Ukrainians support what's going on in our fight against Russia for our existence. Pavlov Klimkin, thank you very much indeed for joining me tonight here on GB News. Stand, stand with Ukraine.
Thank you very much indeed. We talked earlier about energy independence. A couple of thoughts coming in from you. One viewer says, energy independence is so unambitious. We have the resources and technical capability to become a net supplier of energy. All we lack is political will. I couldn't agree more. We should be an exporter of energy. Craig says, definitely. Rolls-Royce have developed the technology. Smaller reactors and more of them, similar to what's installed in submarines. Proven technology. In a moment, a man who worked as a miner. And yes, he's actually a Conservative MP. But the bit I really like is that according to the Daily Mirror, he was the worst man in Britain in 2021. I think he might have even outdone me on that. That's quite remarkable. Talking pints in a moment with Lee Anderson. The GB News Tavern is open. It's Talking Pints. I'm joined by the Ashfield Member of Parliament for the Conservative Party, Lee Anderson. Lee, cheers, cheers. Good to see you. Now, I was regularly voted the worst MEP in Brussels. I was absolutely Greenpeace's villain of the year several times, but I think you've outdone me. Mm. The Daily Mirror's worst man in Britain, 2021. Congratulations. I'll cheers that. Uh, I'm so very, very proud to oh, see you. You know what? Um, <laughs> it was a tough act to follow. But when I found out about the award, um, the first thing I did was run my parents and my family. They were so proud of me. <laughs> you know, I'm the first ever uh, member of our family to be, to be uh, given an award like that. So I'd like to thank my family, my staff, uh, <laughs> friends at GB News for promoting me whenever they can. Uh, yeah, I'm absolutely delighted. And I've just told a friend that I'm going hell for leather to try and make it two in a row. Oh, I think you're going to have no trouble at all, I promise you. Yeah. Lee, Ashfield, born and bred, Ashfield's home in every sense, mm. family, rooted, been there forever, traditional upbringing, a miner. Yeah, yep, coal miner. Um, I, I always say, Nigel, that I was brought up on a, a strict diet of uh, Scargill, Skinner and Tony Benn. That's what you listened to in the 70s and 80s when I yeah. grew up. So it only followed that uh, my dad was a miner. I followed my dads and my granddads into the pits. <coughs> and it only followed that I was going to vote Labour and be a Labour supporter. And I joined the Labour Party when I was 16 the first time. So that was sort of in our DNA. But fast forward 40-odd years and I find myself working for a Labour MP. Who is now, of course... Is the excellent presenter on, on GB News. And Gloria to Piero. Yeah. I was working for Gloria. Yeah, way, I know. We're very good friends, but politically yeah. we're probably poles apart. But as well, working for Gloria and getting close to the Labour Party and have that close relationship with the Labour Party, I actually found out it wasn't the party for me. And I always remember that I was in a Labour group meeting as a Labour councillor about five or six years, no, three, three or four years ago, 2018 in February, and one of the uh, Momentum members said to me, have you ever read the, the works of Karl Marx? And I says, well, funnily enough, I haven't. He says, well, off then, and join the Tory party. I thought, you know what, that's not a bad idea. <laughs> so I joined the Tory party, and 18 months later, I was his MP. So, so <laughs> was it... Was it Corbynism that drove you out of the of the? It was Labour lots of party? things. I mean, to be honest with you, Nigel, being in the Labour Party, for me was an abusive relationship. Uh, and then, you know, there was the Brexit thing, there was Corbyn. Mm. You know, you, you have to realise, Nigel, that when you wake up one morning and you think to yourself, I'm in the same party as, as Corbyn, John MacDonald, 
Thornbury, Dine Abbott, you think to yourself, my goodness, what am I doing with myself? You know, just chuck that into the mix with the local Labour Party who were absolutely nuts at the time. These were people that were wanting to sign Book of Condolences for Fidel Castro when he died. This is how crazy they were, you know. Yeah. Soon to fly the, the flag of Palestine and the Union Jack. Yeah, 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 yeah. And we've seen that at Labour conferences in Corbyn's time. Yeah, it's, and, it's, it's and, and your local community, I mean, I, I'm sure some people understood because... Yeah. You know, I've campaigned in Asheville, yeah. big Brexit area and, and a very patriotic part of the country and all of that. But you must still get a bit of abuse from people that you somehow sort of betrayed the tribe. I, I do. I get a little bit. Um, to be honest, when I, when I first... The actual decision to, to do what I did wasn't that difficult, but the actual physical action of doing it, you know, phoning my boss up, telling people I'd, I'd mm. walk the floor, if you like, that, that was quite difficult. My family, you know, got family who's Labour Party members. One of my sons was really upset. He's a Corbyn fan. The other one, he didn't, he didn't give a toss, really. But you know what? Just 18 months later, a lot of those people that were very dubious about me doing that, they voted for me at a general election. So yeah, I've no, made suddenly. that same journey. It's, uh, it's great. Lee Anderson, Labour Party activist, former minor, becomes a Conservative Member of Parliament, and you're there with the Old Etonians and the Bullingdon Club and the Oxbridge yeah, set. Yeah. Are you a bit of a fish out of water? I thought I would be. I was a bit dubious because I'd never been to, to the Palace of Westminster before I was elected. And I got there and, you know, you see these, these characters like, you know, like your Rhys Moggs, your Boris's, your Peter Patel's, and all these characters you've only ever seen on TV. But I tell you what, when I walked in that tea room on the first day, they all made me feel incredibly welcome. And I feel like I'm at home. I've got that camaraderie that I had when I worked down the pits. And that might sound uh, difficult to believe, but the, yeah, we really are uh, like a band of brothers. It, it's great. You know, we've had a difficult time over the past few months, but you know, we really are yeah. good comrades. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure they did welcome you on day one. Yeah. But now we're a couple of years in. Yeah. And what we've learned is that Lee Anderson doesn't do what he's told. Lee Anderson does what he thinks is right. Yeah. And you've taken some quite strong stands, haven't you? I mean, I mean, in particular, let's have a look at Lee talking about lockdowns and, 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 and face and face. Tell me about this, Nigel. That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Unlike the opposition, the Prime Minister has got all the big decisions right through the pandemic. But will he agree with me that we should never return to a full lockdown and any isolation should be targeted? It should be the clinically vulnerable, the elderly and the Labour front bench. <laughs> <laughs> I played it because I loved it. I thought, isn't it interesting? Here's somebody in the Commons getting up. He's not scripted. He's just doing it. Yeah. You know, and I loved it. No, the point I was making was you were quite critical, actually. Yes, I, I think, I mean, I see myself really being that red to blue Tory MP, if you like, when uh, when some of our colleagues have a go at the opposition, it's it's not as effective as, as me, because I've been there, I've been part of the Labour Party, I've been part of that Labour family, I've seen what they get up to, so when I get up, they look at me, and they and they put their heads down, they roll their eyes, they groan, because they know what's coming, it's going to be something that reveals their hypocrisy most of the time, there's a lot of hypocrisy in the Labour Party, and, and you know, I, I'm not saying I'm a, I'm a bitter man, I'm not, it's just that I've been on that journey, I've seen what they get up to, and, and, and you know, the thought of a Labour government frightens me to death. Yeah, but you've also clashed a bit with the government on net zero. <laughs> and, you know, don't turn your dishwasher on too often and all the rest of it. We're yeah. gonna, and and what, what we're going to do, Lee, is we're going to save the world. Do you know how? Mm. We're not going to produce any of our own, own gas, none of our own coal, none of our own oil. We won't manufacture any steel. We won't manufacture do any heavy engineering, yeah. we'll export it all, yeah. and then they produce the CO2, not us, and we've saved the planet. 
see fossil fuels, coal, whatever. It's in my DNA. It's in my blood. It's where I started after leaving school. It's where my dad, my granddad's, my great granddad's work. So I'm sort of from an area that gets it. You know, it. If we went and lived in caves tomorrow, Nigel, and switched all the lights off and socked our factories, our cars, everything, it wouldn't make a blind bit of difference. You know, it's, 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 it's a world problem and it is a world solution. And you've got China pumping out all sorts of yep. money. You've got Canada, you've got, you've got Russia doing all, all, all these things, opening pits, Germany burning coal. And little old England's trying to trying to fly the flag on this on this net zero journey, which I don't disagree with, by the way. I just think we need to be sensible. You know, we, we've 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 banned oil and gas from from Russia. I agree with that. But we also banned coal. No, 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 no. We haven't banned gas. Well, not yet. No, yet. no, we haven't. Correct, correct. We haven't. Uh, you know, I mean, I mean, look. Here's the point: we import fifty percent of the gas that we need. Yes. And the more we become the Saudi Arabia of wind, to quote Boris, the more gas we need for when the wind doesn't blow. We need the stuff. Yes, we do. So we may as well produce it here. You know, that Boland Reserve across Lancashire, bits of Cumbria, right across to Yorkshire, you know as well as I do, that would provide tens of thousands of well paid yep. jobs. Wouldn't that really be levelling up? It would be levelling up. And uh, it's, it's interesting that today during the uh, statement by uh, the, the base Secretary of State, uh, Quasi, that there was a slight change in tone uh, on fracking. Uh, and mm. I mentioned a bit about coal mining as well, because we are importing coal from Russia. Four and a half million tonnes a year. Yeah, metallurgical yep. coal yep. we're importing, which is used to make steel. So there is a change in tone. And I think it's, you know, with the pandemic and now the war in Ukraine, that's sort of forcing governments. And I welcome that, actually. I think we should be self-sufficient. And as you said earlier, we should be selling gas to, to the rest of you. Would you be exporting? Yeah, create jobs, make money, tax yeah. it, yeah. get income yeah. for the Treasury. No, I feel... There. I feel very strongly about it. I'm guessing that one of the most difficult things for you coming up in the next couple of years, coming from a community where average incomes are nothing like they are in Surrey or Cheshire, and even before Ukraine, we saw inflation. Mm. Yeah, that monster that had gone away all those years ago. Now with what we're seeing, uh, the cost of living crisis Mm. for your constituents, You know, working families yep. is going to be a nightmare, isn't it? Yeah, and I say this all the time, Nigel. You know, you can forget the pandemic. Well, you can't forget the pandemic. But, you know, the, the furlough scheme, you know, the business support grants, all the financial help that the government targeted at communities like mine, which saved hundreds and not thousands of jobs. We've had we've had Brexit. We've, we've, we've now got the, the, the war in Ukraine. But the one <coughs> thing that will define us as a government, as a party, is how much money people's got in their pockets at the end of the week. It's the pound in the pocket. And if they, if they don't think they've got as much money as they had five years ago, they feel worse off or they're struggling, then they may punish us. It's going to be tough, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's going to be tough. So tell me, what's the best moment been? Conservative Member of Parliament, what's, what's the best bit been? Was it day one walking in? Or? I, I, think, I think the best part for me is when, yeah, walking into that, that chamber the first time because I'd never seen it. And also when you swear in, when you swear that allegiance to to Queen and Country, that's that's quite a moving part when you, you know, you've got the Bible there, you've got your little speech and you walk past... It's it. real, isn't it? Yeah, it's real. You think, my goodness, this is like imposter syndrome. What what you know, what the heck am I doing here? You know, just 18 months ago, I was a Labour Party member working in an office, I'd worked out pit for, for a lot of my life and never expected to be a Member of Parliament. But I'm there, I think I deserve to be there. You know, I'm, I'm a real person. Uh, I'm from the place I represent. And when I get in that chamber, I try and talk like me, it was a bloke in a pub in Ashfield or out on the streets talking to people and I try and speak like Ashfield folk do and, and I think I do. When you go back home, is, are you still the same person? Yes, um, yes. I try, what, are you sure? What I try to do, Nigel, is when I go back home, I make a point of going into the local pub 
walking down the high street, I walk back from the station, talk to people, pop into shops, go into the calves. I go to the uh, local pond where some of my old mates fish. You get some real opinions, some real people. Because this is a bubble, let's be honest. It's, <laughs> it, it is a bubble. And I, I need people to give me a bit of a, you know, telling off. I need people to t tell it uh, straight. And folk in Ashford are pretty straight talking. And when I get back, they, they give it to me, both barrels. Is Boris going to survive now? I think he's going to survive, yeah. I think he is. I, I think he's a visionary. I think he's had, I think his problems have been, Nigel, he's had put a poor team around him. Uh, and he sort of sorted that out. You know, we're getting a lot more... Not more say now. I think the backbenchers are going to be more involved in, in, in policy, which is good. You know, got red wall MPs now, people who have come from different backgrounds, people like me, people that had real jobs, not been to Eton, uh, not been to private. Oh, he so, sounds like Labour now, yeah, doesn't he? Yeah. <laughs> hey, if I got the money, I'd send my kids to private school. Uh, and most working class people would, obviously. No, of course. I've never had the money. No, no, of course. Well, Lee, I have to say that, you know, we do agree on quite a few things. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure we disagree on quite a few things. Yes but you are a bit of a breath of fresh air in Westminster Thank politics. You. And you're part of the change that I saw. When I led UKIP, I could see Labour voters yeah. suddenly realising Labour didn't represent those old patriotic values, that, 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 those old decent things. And so I sort of, in a way, like to half think that I helped create a catalyst that has led to this great change. And I've, I've met lots of you from the yeah. Red Wall, and you're very, very different people. Yeah. I, I think so, Nigel. And you know what, without you, I don't want to blow your own trumpet, but you led the, the Brexit charge, if you like, over the past well, 20 years. Yeah, and we've got that. You wouldn't be sat here today. No, well, we've got that. Listen, thank you for joining me on Talking Pines. Super. That was Lee Anderson. OK, we've got a couple of minutes left. Let's go for Barrage the Farage. You've sent your questions in. Here goes. Lee's here to support me. I get really tough while it's going over there, believe you me. Adrian asks, Nigel, you talk about the success of the financial services, but what benefit is that to the ordinary working class? Well, twofold, really. Number one, it's the biggest employer in the country. Don't think financial services is all the city of London or Canary Wharf. Every major town in the country has got insurance offices, banks, people working in those jobs, plus in terms of tax revenues. And without tax revenues, we can't have a health service. We can't have those things. Financial services contributes in a big way. Andrew asks, ah, oh, this is a good one. Do you think Priti Patel is working too slow on the visa problem? Good question. Uh, I knew somebody was going to ask this tonight. But look, it's a big problem. I, I mean, I've called uh, to, to, for government to speed this up. It's, it's a nonsense noise. And I sort of get the argument that we need to check these people when they come yeah. in. Obviously, we do, for safety reasons. Yeah, yeah. But where we sort of lose the argument is we've got women and children fleeing a, a, you know, a proper war-torn country. And their young men are staying behind to fight and, yeah. and die for their country. It's and then, meanwhile, in Calais, we've got young fit men jumping on dinghies, coming over there with no checks in, and they presto, we escort them even, in. Don't even start me on that uh, one. <laughs> and, and that's where I, that's where yeah. I struggle to, to balance, yeah. This, yeah. balance this argument. I suspect that actually the, the, the Home Office itself isn't fit for purpose. Let's move on. Anthony asks, peanuts, scampi, fries or pork scratchings? What's next to your pint at the Farage Arms? I've got to go scratchings. How would you? Scratchings. scratchings. Got to be scratchings. Right. I've got time for one more, certainly. Bennett asks me, do you think Boris has stepped up to the international challenge with Ukraine sufficiently or could more be done? I think Brexit Britain has actually shown that it's able now to stand up and speak for itself in a way that it couldn't do as a member of the European Union. And I really mean that. 
I, I agree, Nigel. I think we have stepped up. I think the, the media, especially if you believe the BBC and the Daily Mirror, which I don't very yeah. often. Yeah. Worst uh, man of the year. Yeah, yeah, they're giving Boris a, a tough time of this, but actually I think we've done pretty good. Yeah, we've done we all need right. to sort the, the, uh, the visas out properly. But, but we're doing all right. We're doing all right. Now, next Tuesday evening, I'm going to be Farage at Larging in Dudley. Get your tickets. gbnews.uk slash Farage at Large. Come and see me in Dudley next Tuesday. It'll be a full house. Get in quick.